Chapter thirty four of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty four. It was the shock. Later, Hewson made a fuller confession. In it, he explained how he first came to meditate the crime which he afterwards carried out with such diabolic persistence. He had never indulged himself in dishonest longings, never allowed himself to dream of any other life than that of daily work in the household of which he had for so many years been a member, until the day he was called into his master's study on some errand or other which led him to the desk. A memorandum was lying there, and as he had his glasses on, he could not help seeing his own name among a list of others, with the figures $1,000 against it. Now it was no secret in the house that his master was at this very time engaged in drawing up his will. Indeed, the lawyer had been there that very morning. Consequently, Hewson immediately drew the inference that these figures represented the amount he was to receive upon his master's death, and though at the moment he experienced nothing but gratitude for the good will thus shown, the knowledge of what he might expect under certain circumstances slowly roused in him strange ambitions and new desires, which afterwards resolved themselves into longings which gave him no rest day or night. The relief from daily routine, a little home in a country place where he could raise vegetables and flowers, a quiet smoke in the twilight on a porch all his own, all this would be paradise to the tired old man and as he dwelt upon its charms he became impatient at his master's robust health, and began to note the difference in their years, which, alas, were entirely in his master's favor, and to think, yes, to think, that though it would cause him regret, naturally so, to see that master's health give away, it would not be so hard as this endless counting of years nothing but disease could annul that, in short, a lifetime of service devoted to Mr. Gillespie and his sons had become as nothing in the light of his new desires, and when the usually healthy broker was finally seized with some complaint which laid him on his back, these desires grew into hopes which it was useless for him to smother, for he was now determined to have his little fortune, whether or no, and have it before he was himself too old to miss its full enjoyment. Meanwhile, he was much in the confidence of the family. He heard his master's symptoms discussed, and learned while waiting on table that Mr. Gillespie was being given small doses of a certain poison as medicine, doses which it would be dangerous to increase. He could go through all his duties with the utmost precision without ceasing to take in such a conversation and when in the course of time he heard that Mr. Gillespie was improving and would soon be quite well, he allowed himself to dwell upon the tempter's whispered suggestion that three more little drops from a bottle, constantly in use by his master's bedside, would remedy all this, and in a safe and seemingly natural way, end the one existence which stood between him and the money he now regarded as his own. The carrying out of this thought was easy. He knew that his master was now well enough to be left alone at night, likewise to help himself to his own medicine after it was once prepared for him. One had only to steal into the room in the early hours of the night, 
and with careful manipulation of bottle and glass increased that dose before the time came for the sick man to want it hewson was accustomed to noiseless actions he could even handle glass without a sound having been trained in quiet ways by the very man who in such an unexpected manner was now destined to fall a victim to these very precautions he therefore did not fear waking mr gillespie he only feared finding him already awake but even this possibility lost its terrors when he considered that to make himself quite safe he had but to utter the low whispered father with which the young gentlemen were accustomed to approach the sick-bed at night if mr gillespie heard and answered he would know the moment badly chosen and steal away while if no answer came he had but to proceed as the devil and his own dark instincts prompted night came and he went through his part as he supposed successfully but in the morning he missed the alarm he had a right to expect and soon learned that mr gillespie had accidentally overthrown the glass of medicine which had been so carefully prepared for him worse than this he saw the bottle of poison emptied clean out and heard that mr gillespie's medicine was to be changed to one quite harmless what did this mean and how could he now hope to carry out the scheme he was more than ever resolved upon for a while he felt quite discouraged and drooped a little over his work which was becoming hourly more irksome he began to hate the man who had upset the glass which if drank would have ensured him an immediate enjoyment of his little fortune and even to cherish the same feeling towards mr gillespie's three sons to whose wants he catered and who were all young enough to wait for their fortunes while he now nearly fourscore could not that is he hated the two eldest but alfred well he didn't quite hate alfred indeed he almost loved him loved him well enough to be glad that he as well as himself would profit by the old man's death if only some new way could be found of bringing it safely about meanwhile he found as many errands to his master's rooms as possible especially when the doctor was there and being regarded as a piece of household furniture rather than a living breathing and determined man these two rarely made an end to their talk or changed their topic on account of his presence and so it was he heard them often discuss poisons and was able to gather up one or two items in regard to these dangerous drugs which otherwise he might have missed among other things he learned that an acid smelling like bitter almonds killed quickly and without much pain but he failed to take in that this very smell was calculated to give away its presence brooding over this happy discovery he cast about in his mind how he could prepare a drink likely to please his master without awakening his distrust for weeks he thought it over testing and trying various concoctions finally he hit on one which he prepared under mr gillespie's eye and partially under his directions and which was so strongly spiced that his master did not detect or at least made no objection to the flavoring of bitter almonds which he was careful to put into it indeed mr gillespie grew to like it and for a reason now readily to be understood seemed to prefer anything brought him by his old servant to the finest of wines poured out for him by his sons 
Having thus provided a means for disguising the poison when the opportunity came for administering it, he cast about how he could procure the necessary drug without risk to himself. Ignorant as he was in most matters, he knew that he could not walk into a drug store and buy so deadly a poison without rousing suspicion. So, as I have said before, he waited, but not long. Will begets way, or, truer yet, the devil prepares the way for him who is willing to walk in it. One morning he came upon a file in Mr. Layton's room, whose very appearance strangely affected him. It was small, it held a dark liquid, and it had a wicked look strangely attractive to him. He took the file up. He smelt it. Bitter almonds. Greatly excited and somewhat shaken, he set it down again. How had Mr. Layton come by this? What did he want of it? and why was it left standing in this open way on his bureau? Was it for medicinal purposes like the other? Probably, but it seemed stronger, very strong indeed. It seemed strong enough to kill a man. Catching it up, he carried it away. If any inquiries are made, I'll say I knocked it over and broke it. But Hewson didn't think any inquiries would be made. Mr. Gillespie's sudden death would make all such little matters forgotten. Having in this unexpected way secured the very poison he most desired, Hewson poured it into the sink, all but the few drops he had heard constituted a fatal dose. Then he put the phial away in a teacup and waited his opportunity. It was not long in coming. That evening he prepared the drink as usual for Mr. Gillespie, and while waiting for that gentleman to call for it, saw Mr. George come into the dining-room and take away the bottle of sherry, and afterwards Mr. Alfred, who hunted about for his pencil. Later he heard Mr. Layton come downstairs, but he did not wait to see what that gentleman wanted, for his own work in the butler's pantry was now done, and he thought it better to show himself in the kitchen. But he was suddenly called up by the dining-room bell. Mr. Layton wished a glass of sherry for his father. This was an unexpected order, and for the moment set him quite aback. For if Mr. Gillespie drank sherry now, he would not want his spiced drink later. However, he put a good face on the matter and got out the wine, which he handed to Mr. Layton, who poured out a glassful and carried it into his father. A moment later he heard the front door close. Leighton had gone out to one of his numerous meetings, and Mr. Gillespie was left alone. Somehow the old servant had an irresistible desire to see how his master looked at this moment. There had been loud words between that master and Mr. Leighton before the latter had left, and he wanted to see how his master had borne it, wanted to see. Well, he hardly knew what but he went to the dining-room door, and, finding the opposite one open, peered in. Mr. Gillespie was standing just where his son had doubtless left him, gazing intently into the wine-glass which he held, untasted, in his hand. His face was wan and troubled. Suddenly he moved, and glancing behind him, like a man bound on some guilty errand, but not looking far enough into the distance to see Hewson watching him from the depths of the dimly lighted room on the other side of the hall, he hurried to the window, and, 
raising first the shade and then the sash, flung out the contents of the glass into the back yard. This done, he uttered a sigh, which spoke of some great inward trouble, and, reclosing the window, carried back the empty glass to the dining-room, from which Hewson had, by this time, slipped in guilty confusion. Not understanding Mr. Gillespie's sudden distaste for the wine he had ordered, but determined to profit by what struck him as a very happy chance, Hewson put his own concoction on a tray, and, creeping to the buffet, took the phial out of the teacup in which he had concealed it, and emptied its contents into the glass he carried. Then, not liking to put the phial back, he thrust it into his vest-pocket, mouth up, the cork having slipped from his hand and rolled away in the darkness. He was willing to be heard now, and was stepping briskly around the room, when Mr. Gillespie called out, "'Who's that? Is it Hewson?' "'It is, sir,' was the demure reply. "'I came up to make you that drink you like so well. But Mr. Leighton said you preferred sherry.' "'Yes, yes, but I like your drink, too. Brew it and bring it in to me.' I seem to be unusually thirsty to-night. Without a quiver, without a conscious sense of doing anything greatly out of the common, this tried old servant brought him the glass, which he knew would end all earthly relations between them. He even waited until he saw it emptied. Then he took it out again, and immediately washed it. Why he felt this precaution necessary, he hardly knew unless it was to pass away the moment of suspense. He never dreamed for a minute that there was anything special for him to fear. Were not men dropping dead every day in counting-houses or in the streets? And why not this man? That the police would be called in, or that so quiet a death would be treated as a crime, had never occurred to him. He had never read murder cases much, indeed had never read anything much, he only knew he wanted his master to die, and that the quickest way to bring this about was to give him a dose of very strong poison. Yet, after he had done this, he felt some nervousness, not over what he had done, but its seemingly slow results. He had expected Mr. Gillespie to fall at once, perhaps before he was himself well out of the room, and Mr. Gillespie did not fall. Hewson had had time to wash the glass, put it away, go down into the kitchen again, and come back, without hearing the heavy thud for which his ears were strained. Was his affair to fail again? Had the dark and pungent liquor been harmless, and was it decreed that he was to go back to his old life with no hopes of a change or relief? He was so worked up by this thought that he crept into the dining-room again, and was making for the hall door to take another peep into the study, when his foot encountered a small object on the floor. Yielding to his usual methodical habits, he stooped and picked up what proved to be Alfred's pencil. This he mechanically dropped into his pocket, then he went on. He found his master reeling over the study floor in the first consciousness, perhaps, of his alarming condition. He seemed to be trying to find the door, but, as Hewson drew nearer, fascinated perhaps by the sight of suffering, of which he himself had been the cause, Mr. Gillespie suddenly paused in this effort, and meeting Hewson's eyes, threw up his arms and made for his desk, 
upon which he fell in a way which assured his anxious watcher that the last minutes of his quantum master were at hand. It was at this moment, probably, and not till this moment, that Mr. Gillespie recognized his real murderer. Of the tumult this awakened in heart and brain, who can judge? As he had no wish to watch his sufferings, he made another journey downstairs and showed himself in the servants' hall just as little Claire broke away from her nurse and rushed, laughing loudly, up to her grandfather. This convinced him that his own comings and goings had been so natural that they had not even been noticed by his fellow servants. He saw that they had been playing a merry game with the child, and that not one of them had had an eye for him or his unaccustomed nervousness. This gave him courage, and soon, very soon now, they all had reason for nervousness. The long-delayed alarm was heard at last. Strangers came into the house. The police followed and this old reprobate, who had remained serene amidst all the turmoil, realized that there was more to fear in the matter than had ever struck his mind. With his fear came not only a desire to hide his own guilt, but the requisite cunning for doing so. He realized that he must get rid of the file before he was searched, and being left a minute to himself in the dining-room, he took it out of his side-vest pocket, and shaking out the pencil which had slipped into it, he thrust it under the clock as being the one article not likely to be moved. It was a heavy lift for his old arms, and his elbows shook as he guided it back into place. The consequence was that he knocked over the glass which Mr. Gillespie had set down on the mantelpiece a few minutes before. But though the clatter which it made attracted attention, and the broken pieces of this glass were carefully examined, nothing was discovered from them the glass having held nothing but sherry. Not so with poor Alfred's pencil, the end of which had rested in the last drop of poison remaining in the file. The odor of prussic acid thus communicated to it came near bringing his favorite young master into jeopardy. But something, Hewson hardly knew what, intervened to save him, and all was going on well or as well as could be expected after the suspicions expressed by Mr. Gillespie against his sons, when this young demon in the shape of a detective flung himself at the old butler's throat, and without telling him why or by what means he had learned it, accused him of being his master's poisoner. It was the shock, the shock, the miserable wretch wailed out, had I had more time to think, I would have known that he had no proof against me, that it was all guesswork, and that I would be a fool to fear that. But it is too late now. I have said it, and I stand by it. Only I wish I could have seen the thousand dollars for which I killed my master, lying for one instant in my hand. I would willingly go without the cottage, go without the evening pipe in the sight of hills and meadows, just to realize the sensation of holding all that money and knowing that it was mine. End of chapter 34